Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Mystifyingly Missing, True Crime, and Thought-Provoking Events. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and thank you so much for taking some time out to listen today. If you're new here, I cover a variety of different topics, um, anything from you know the aforementioned true crime, um, sometimes odd coincidences in history, um, interesting facts, just a lot of things that I'm interested in. So I really hope everybody is interested in similar types of content. And, you know, I look forward to, um, you know, reviewing different events and cases with everybody. This is a second part of two cases. Um, it's kind of a compare contrast of two different kidnapping cases. It is very important that if you've not listened to the first one, that you do go back and do so. It does cover the complete kidnapping, with air quotes, of Sherry Papini and the beginning of um, the kidnapping of Denise Huskins, as well as the captivity of her boyfriend, Aaron, who was tied up at the time um, that she was kidnapped. A couple of things I do want to say right now is I know this will be a long um, episode, probably getting close to an hour and a half. So I don't really want to split it into three episodes, so this is going to go a little while, I know. Secondly, as the case that surrounds Sherry Papini starts to you know, kind of come together and we learn more about what was actually occurring at the time, what the police have found out um, since she was released, we still have to keep in mind that she has not been convicted. Um, I will be bringing up other lawsuits during this um, episode. So we have to keep in mind as well that at this point, at least, I had not seen any information about um, those cases, you know, ending and a settlement occurring or anything like that. So just remember, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. And even when it's a civil case, you know, we can't really say which side was more factual until it actually you know, comes to an end. I do keep or put all of my sources in the description of the episode. Also, I do upload to YouTube. It's just basically the audio with maybe a picture or two. So, you know, it's not like a, a video where you see me talking, at least at this point. I've not, I've done maybe a handful of those between two channels, but that's it. But because of some YouTube, I guess you would say, rules. There are certain words that you can't say. Um, so I will do my best to abbreviate them or say them in a manner that will allow it to go on YouTube. As with most of the episodes or cases that I do cover, there will be discussion of things that may be disturbing to some people. In this particular case, you know, I've mentioned the kidnapping. Um, there is mention of a certain type of assault um, against one of the, the people that was kidnapped. And just kind of some information for future episodes, usually there is some type of injury, illness, unfortunately even death sometimes. So you know, because of the type of content it is where it's looking at possibly disasters, historical events, or crimes, these things do arise in some of the episodes. So to get back into approximately where um, we left off, Denise... Huskins and Aaron Quinn were staying the night at Aaron's house. They had just had a long conversation um, because their relationship was kind of at a crossroads. 
since he had actually started to get in contact with a previous fiance. So, you know, they had discussed their relationship and they were going to give it a go when the house was broken into. It sounded like possibly the person who was doing the speaking thought that it was the previous fiance as both women had long blonde hair. It was dark, you know, it was night. So, you know, it was a possibility of mistaken identity. Also, they used um, some pre-recorded um, pre-recorded phrases to communicate. So there was a lot of bizarre actions in this case. And I mean, any kidnapping or crime like this is traumatic. And, you know, there's not, I don't think you can really say one fits like a cookie cutter mold, but this was just bizarre in everything that really the person did. And where I ended was kind of with a thought of mine, looking at it from, say, the police perspective and then also from a third party perspective. Um, when Aaron did contact the police, um, once he was able to kind of come, come off of the drugs that he'd been given, he had been given sedatives and they came to his house, his car was missing and they took that as proof that he was involved in the kidnapping. You know, I actually looked at it briefly as, mm, could it be signs of maybe another, maybe an accident, not necessarily something on purpose, um, but an accident. But that's about where we stopped off. Now, it was about 48 hours later, and Denise had been going through hell with just everything she had to experience during that time. She was held against her will and was drugged and had assault committed against her. Then it was just suddenly over with the main physical trauma behind her. And there will be trauma to come though. She had been released by her abductors. And while she would still need to deal with the aftermath of what her attackers did, the current and immediate fear of you know being killed or what were they going to do next to her, that was behind her. I can't even really imagine being in that specific situation. Um, your mind probably is just in the here and now. And she just needed to get or wanted to get to someplace safe. And just as time went on, probably, you know, thinking forward to having to face her attacker and kidnapper in court, but not even imagining probably in any, you know, just in any way what she was actually going to be going through. Um, also she could be thinking what would happen if the kidnappers are never caught and she's left wondering what happened and if they're going to ever come back um, to her again. There has to be this loss of a sense of security. Now, during the time that Denise was missing, Aaron was taken to the police station to give a statement. They also, of course, processed him. Um, they looked for different types of forensic evidence, such as DNA or other types of trace um, that may be on him that was transferred from the kidnapper. He was given a set of clothes after his clothes were taken, and they were actually prison clothes. Um, he retold his story again. He talked about the blacked out goggles that were placed over his eyes. He had also talked about pre-recorded messages that told him what he was supposed to do, and of course, 
one of the first questions after you get past the basics will be, okay, how were you and Denise doing in your relationship? I'm sure they ask things such as, was there tension in the relationship? Was there cheating? And Aaron had to realize at some point that they were really honing in on him as a suspect. They even told him as much in that they didn't think he was being honest and that nobody had come into the house. You know, they believed, um, and using things that one investigator, a detective, Matthew Mustard, um, what he was saying, and I'm sorry, just to bring it up, I know, at least myself, when I heard the name Matthew Mustard, I thought of Colonel Mustard from the game Clue, but Mustard said that they found a blood stain on the sheets. Aaron was aware of that as it was just a small area of blood that had actually been washed a couple of times. You know, it was just a contact that sometimes happens. You know, you have a cut or scrape, something happens, and there's just a spot of blood on your sheets. It felt like with that one little bit of blood, the police were thinking that they were getting close to a murder case. Now, if you watch true crime or even fictitious crime shows, you've probably seen how a detective will start to put words into someone's mouth, um, such as giving them a quote unquote out. Um, it's giving a suspect a way to admit they did a crime without making it seem quite so vicious like looking at it as an accident or that's not what they meant to do. And so while doing um, the interrogation with Aaron, they would ask him things about possibly getting into a fight or pushing Denise, um, maybe even taking some drugs that went wrong. And in something that I really consider to be the lowest of one of the lows, um, I'm not sure how many people remember the quote-unquote preppy killer that um, happened many, many years ago in Central Park. And a woman was killed and the defendant tried to say that it was consensual, that it was strangulation in the course of intercourse, that it just went wrong. And since then, there have been a number of different people who've tried to use this as an excuse for murder. And that's what the police were trying to hint at, that maybe things were weird and something went wrong. And so I really do find this pretty vile to bring up. I do have to tell myself it's the police are trying to get a confession, so they're using the tools at hand. But at the same time, there have been so many men and, you know, I don't know, maybe even women who have used this as an excuse and, you know, to bring it up during an interrogation, it just, it really did, you know, just rub me the wrong way there. So with any investigation, there are lots of things going on at one time. Denise's parents were contacted about her disappearance. Um, the FBI came in and gave Aaron a polygraph. And he had said that he wanted to take one because he had nothing to do with Denise's kidnapping and he wanted to prove that. Um, but he was told that he actually fa failed the polygraph. We have to remember, too, that polygraphs are not admissible in court, but a lot of times they are used to help either point the police in a certain direction or stop them from following a certain line of inquiry. Now, there's actually something that I found 
very interesting in reviewing this particular case with Aaron, as well as a couple more that um, I'm familiar with. Now, unfortunately, I don't remember the name of one of the women, but it's another example of sometimes what happens in an interrogation. So Aaron has been in this interrogation. He's been asked certain things. He probably still is under the influence of, you know, one of the sedatives that they used on him. And he really started to doubt his sanity. And this was a quote from him. I thought maybe I did have a schizophrenic breakdown, end quote. So, you know, you might wonder, how can someone start to doubt themselves like that? Well, about six months or so ago, I saw a documentary about a woman who had been accused of killing her daughter and actually confessed. Now, the thing is, the timelines didn't really work out that well. There was, wasn't really a motive except for, you know, the, the teenage mother-daughter, you know, not getting along as the daughter's growing and, you know, just what most families go through as their children are growing. But after some grueling questioning, she actually did begin to doubt whether or not she could have done that and eventually gave a false confession, which, if I remember correctly, it wasn't even like a true confession, not a, yes, this is what I did and this is how I did it. But it got the person to the point that she was doubting her own, um, her own memories and thinking that she could have killed her daughter. You know, she's not only going through this questioning, but she's also grieving the loss of that daughter. And so there's a lot of emotional manipulation that could go around that. She also had previously, um, well, she was an alcoholic. She had been sober at times, but they brought that in. You know, what if she was drinking and, you know, everything like that, where she actually gave that confession and then coincidentally, as I was finishing up notes, I saw another case where there's a possibility of a woman who is on death row in Texas that the same type of situation could have come about, that yes, she did have a history of drug abuse, um, she did have children that were not in her custody at the time, and her daughter died, um, but she's always said it was a fall down the stairs. But similar tactics were used in her confession and while, you know, if there was negligence based on the drug abuse, we don't know. The fact is there was a confession made when she really didn't, you know, remember that. Also, in that particular case, it really wasn't a confession either. It was before things were recorded um, for the interrogation. So there's some question, too, as to whether or not she actually said she did it or not. But these are just some examples of... You know, when people can actually begin to doubt themselves based on, you know, going through a traumatic event and, you know, interrogation of people who've been doing this for a very long time, where in most cases, you know, a citizen is not interrogated by police on a regular basis, let's face it. But having a brother in law enforcement, um, because Aaron's brother was an FBI agent, does have some advantages as his brother was able to get hold of an attorney and hired hired an attorney for him. The attorney's name was Dan Russo and you know after years of practicing criminal law, he knew how the police um, thought, um, what their actions meant and he told Aaron, quote, "Look, 
This is going to be a nightmare and there is no way you're going to be able to pinch yourself and wake up. That's the end of the quote there. So very succinctly, he let Aaron know this is going to be tough. And, you know, as if things weren't already as bizarre as they were, a newspaper, um, the San Francisco Chronicle, received a recorded message, which, remember, the kidnappers used recorded messages um, from someone saying that, you know, they had kidnapped Denise, and then Denise came onto the recording, and she spoke about things that were current news events. So this could not have been something that was recorded, say, five days prior to the kidnapping. It was something that was current on that current day's newspaper so that it was proven it was, you know, something happening then and now. So I don't know if Aaron's brother had worked with this attorney before, but Russo and his law firm were very, very attentive. The police did bring Aaron back before Denise was released. And this was after the, the newspaper, though, had received the message. They asked Aaron to reply to that message using his phone. But someone from Russo's legal team saw that the phone itself was in airplane mode. Now, just some info if someone's not familiar with airplane mode. It's where, you know, basically the phone is still on. You see the display and you can access things that are downloaded to the actual phone itself. But you cannot access... Um, data or, you know, mobile internet using your phone. The airplane mode would have made it impossible for him to get messages, to call out, all of those things. So when it was actually changed from airplane mode, there were missed messages on that phone. And I'm sure there had to be a number of messages from friends and loved ones who wanted to know how he was or what was going on. But the abductors had also tried to contact him three times. Now, 400 miles away from the, from the abduction, on March 25th, this is two days after the abduction, Denise Huskins was found. She had been released. And something, again, that leads into the strange and bizarre pieces of this case is that the kidnappers had actually grabbed Denise's bags. That's what it's described as. It just says bags. So I'm wondering if you know, say she had brought some bags with her over to Aaron's house, anticipating that possibly that she was going to be staying the night if everything, you know, worked out well in the conversation. And when she was kidnapped, they took them. So, you know, this has also got to look very strange to the police that, okay, this woman's kidnapped and she has her bags with her. Um, so looking impartially, I can see where that is extremely odd. When she was released, she was in this alleyway. She had tape across her eyes, and she waited until she heard the car pull away. And, you know, about 10 seconds after that, she took the, tapes off, the tape off her eyes and realized that she recognized where she was. She was in an alleyway that was pretty close to her mother's home. So she took her bags and started walking. She got to her mother's house, but her mother wasn't home. She was trying to help in the search for her daughter in Vallejo. Um, she was able to borrow a cell phone from someone, and she called her father, but he didn't answer. Um, he was also in Vallejo. I don't know if he didn't answer because he didn't know who it was. You know, he didn't recognize the number. But she left a message, which he did get. 
he let the Huntington Beach Police Department, which is where Denise now was, know that his daughter was in Huntington Beach. Um, she walked towards her father's house, and he was not home, but a neighbor of her father's let her come in, and you know she was with this neighbor when the Huntington Police came, or Huntington Beach Police came. And, of course, they started asking questions about what had occurred, and they did ask about whether or not she had been assaulted. And at that time, she said no. And just as a reminder, I can't say specifically because of YouTube requirements. Um, I'm going to abbreviate it S-A. Um, so she was told no. And this was because actually the kidnapper had said that if you tell the police that I did, then I will hurt your family. So, of course, she's going you know, to not mention that because she wants to keep her family safe. Additionally, the abductor had also said that if you mention that I've said I'm in the military or that there is military background, that your family could be in danger as well. So these are things that she didn't bring up during the initial interrogation by the Huntington Beach police. Since they were so close to Denise's home, there were actually some family members that were available to come help her. She did have a cousin named Nick who was really just a, a brand new attorney. He had just passed the bar and he was able to come and just you know, provide some basic assistance until you know, she could get someone more permanent. So um, after you know, connecting with Nick and he was able to help her initially, she did hire an attorney named Doug Rappaport. And the FBI did offer to fly her from Huntington Beach back to Vallejo, but Mr. Rappaport said no. So she flew commercial. And really, I was thinking about her flying commercial, and I'm just wondering about contamination. And I'll get to that a little bit later, but there are some questions here. But as we can expect, news about the reappearance of this woman who had been kidnapped in an extremely odd and blazing way, brought forth a media firestorm. And so it was at this time that the Vallejo police stepped forward and said that the kidnapping had, quote, been an orchestrated event and not a kidnapping, end quote. All of this is happening very rapidly, and this was put out to the media, which they ran with it. And really, who can blame them? The police are stating this as a fact. There was no if ands, or buts about it. There was no, at this point, it looks like it is heading to us concluding, you know, basically being vague, but saying they thought it was a hoax. It is them saying this is a hoax. So Denise could tell very early on that the police thought of her more as a suspect and not a victim than survivor of this event. So really, how could she feel completely safe with them? When she first met with her attorney in private, she did reveal that she had been assaulted and that the kidnapper had actually videotaped this. So to add a whole other layer to what the kidnapper could actually do in terms of punishing Denise if she said this to the police, it was the fact that it was on videotape and he could release this. Um, you know, it was like a form of blackmail, really. The kidnappers threatened to release the videotape if she went to the police. 
And okay, this is a big question on my part. The kidnapper says, if you go to the police, we're going to release this videotape. However, they've had to have looked at the newspapers. They had to know that the police were looking for this woman. Also, they had sent a recording to a newspaper with Denise's voice on it. So everybody was looking for her. So she couldn't just show up and nobody realized that she showed up. So there was no way she could not not go to the police. Does that make any sense there? That, you know, they told her, if you go to the police, we're going to release this tape to the internet and everybody can see it. Well, you know what? You've already sent something to a newspaper. Everybody knows she's missing. And the moment she reappears, the police are going to be there. So that threat really, that could not really be followed. Even if Denise had decided not to go to the police, she wouldn't have had a choice. They would have showed up because they were already looking for her. So that's just a really big oddity to me. Possibly I'm wondering if the whole possibility of mistaken identity that it was that they were looking for Aaron's previous fiance if that just rattled everybody's cages and they were making these types of mistakes now both Aaron and Denise's attorneys were bulldogs at least that's from the description that I've read they were on top of everything Rappaport who is Denise's attorney asked the police to arrange a an assault kit SA kit or an exam, but that actually didn't happen right away. And this is where I said I had questions about the flight home. Um, You know, evidence could be degrading in every moment that there's not some type of evidence collection. So you would think that the police would want to get these forensics done right away. But according to Rappaport, the police said, quote, well, just have her sleep in her clothes and don't take a shower. And we'll talk in the morning. End of quote. Now, the police have denied that this was ever stated. It's something that, of course, we'll not be able to say for sure whether it did or did not. But the fact that there was no mention about her being taken to a hospital or to a police station um, to be examined, not just to be questioned, but there was no mention of that before she got on the plane. I'm wondering, you know, how did they really expect the evidence to be um, still available, that it wouldn't have degraded on top of contamination because she's been around dozens of people, if not hundreds, going into an airport. Now, the case was becoming known as the Gone Girl case. Um, I've not actually read the book or seen the movie of the same name, But I know enough about it that I'm not going to, um, say, ruin it or give any spoilers. But given the fact that they're calling it the Gone Girl kidnapping and they're saying it's a hoax, we can probably put two and two together and know what the movie and book were about. Aaron had also endured days of interrogation and didn't really know where his girlfriend was. And this uncertainty was hanging over his head as well as a possibility of prison for something that he didn't do. And Denise had gone through those days of abject fear for her life, had been assaulted, and she had this overwhelming fight to survive. And now the main worry in her life was about whether or not the police would believe her 
and wondering how or if they would ever get past this. And if not, would she also go to prison for something that she didn't do? Being held captive now in a whole other sense of the word, this time with the full backing of the law. Now, the kidnappers, though, and yes, I do alternate. I'm realizing between saying plural and singular. Um, I apologize. I'll get into some discussion of that later. Um, But in a surprise mood, the kidnappers became very upset that it was being called a hoax. The abductor sent another message and gave very specific details about what had occurred, um, as well as sending some pictures of Denise. And to make matters worse for the couple, too, they were not allowed to immediately see each other. Um, Denise did describe the feeling of being in Aaron's arms again as something that helped her get through the kidnapping. And Aaron, of course, wanted to do nothing but to hold her. Aaron even thought she might be angry at him and didn't want to see him. Um, It didn't really say the reason why, but I'm wondering if the mention of the previous fiance was making him think that if she hadn't, if Denise hadn't been with him, she wouldn't have been in that situation. But it was about a week before they were finally able to see each other. So one can only imagine what it must have been like to finally hold each other again. And after more than a week of being separated, they were finally able to hold each other again. And while this time was passing, they were being kind of caught in this limbo, not knowing what the police were going to do or ask about next. Um, They didn't know if the police were going to go to the media and tell a story about what they believed happened. Right now, if they did, it looked like they would say that Denise and Aaron had fabricated this story. They had to wonder if they were going to be arrested. So just this whole mass of uncertainty was looming at their door. And looking at it, too, from the family's viewpoint, they had endured the time period that Denise was missing. Then they had to feel this overwhelming relief when she was released. And now they had to watch as a city, a state, and even a nation turned against their loved ones. They had to watch this, you know, this media storm go against their loved ones. But eventually, through no overt effort from the Vallejo Police Department, Evidence arose that would provide proof that Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn had not been lying. In another town named Dublin, California, many, many miles away, another very similar attack took place. And it was actually the Dublin, California police who made the connections that would vindicate vindicate, um, Denise and Aaron. There was an attack that took place in their jurisdiction and a cell phone was found. This phone belonged to a former U.S. Marine and a Harvard Law School student by the name of Matthew Muller. Now, I've noticed sometimes if there's mention of a military career um, or even, you know, a very honorable academic career, sometimes there's follow-up about how maybe it was a dishonorable discharge or they just quit the military or they quit school. But none of that really can be found in Mueller's case. He served five years in the military. Um, There was no mention that it was a dishonorable discharge. Um, He was a graduate from college, and he was attending Harvard Law School. 
So if you were just to look at this guy's information on paper, you probably would never think that he was someone who would, you know, commit these types of crimes. But in Dublin, he did actually try to attack another couple. Um, you know, I guess maybe he didn't give the husband as much credit as he should have because the husband was able to, you know, give Mueller the jump and attack him. So what occurred is, and I don't want to sound sexist in any way, but looking at different types of crimes, usually if there is a couple involved, the perpetrator will try to subdue who they, con who they consider to be the biggest threat right away. So if there is both a male and a female present, most of the time, the perpetrator will go after the male first to try to get him out of the equation. Mueller did not try to subdue the husband initially, so the husband was able to, you know, get the jump on him. And even though Mueller managed to hit the husband in the head with a flashlight, Mueller dropped his phone during the, the fight. So that's what led to him being found. The phone um, was then traced back, you know, like I said, to Mueller and his mother, and she said that he had told her, the mother said that he had told her that he had lost it the day earlier. And without him dropping that cell phone, who knows how many other people may have been harmed, how many other people he could have been planning on attacking. But dropping that one piece of information that, you know, held direct evidence to him was his downfall. Um, it did kind of make me wonder, too, that with all the training he must have had, at least with, you know, basic survival, basic fighting skills, why didn't he leave something that could so easily fall out of a pocket? Why didn't he leave that somewhere else, whether it's in the getaway vehicle, even in a pair of pants that had a zippered um, pocket, anything to just keep it from falling out? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes um, just the seatbelt jostling against me while I'm driving. When I go to get out, my cell phone falls. So during a fight, I mean, that's much more of a possibility as there's a lot of movement there. During the search of Mueller's um, place, they did find some things that led an investigator to wonder if this was his first attempt at breaking in or you know, they probably didn't have a real a really good sense of what he was going to do in that break-in, but they found some things there that caused them some concern. One of them was a pair of goggles, and these goggles had some blonde hair on them. None of the people involved in the previous night's um, attack, you know, with a husband fought back, the hair would not match them. So, that indicated there was probably another case where those goggles were used. They also found a laptop that belonged to Aaron Quinn, and that had been taken during the break-in at his place. So through some more research, they found that Mueller had actually been a person of interest in other attacks. In 2009, there were two different incidents in towns in California, um, Palo Alto and Mountain View, where a man had broken in and threatened to assault the females that lived in the house. It was the abundance of evidence at Mueller's house that made 
um, the detective, and I am going to try to say her last name. I did look it up, but, but I apologize if I say her last name incorrectly. Misty Kuratsu, she thought that there had to be more to this. She took extra, extra steps and did research. Um, during this case, there was also a stolen car involved, and amazingly enough, it had been stolen at the time of the kidnapping where Denise and Aaron were, so it was close to where Aaron's house was. Putting all of these pieces of information together, um, you know, piecing together newspaper articles and other reports about the Gone Girl case, she was able to come up with a pretty good idea of what may have happened. When she reached out to the Vallejo Police Department, they were less than prompt in getting back to her. Let's just say that. So she called the FBI and she got a lot quicker of a response from the FBI. When she told them what she'd found out, the FBI very quickly came to see her along with um, a representative from the Vallejo Police Department. So... Beyond what the Dublin police had come up with, they were able to find Aaron's house address and the GB GPS of the stolen car. Now, when all of this came out, Aaron and Denise's attorneys held a press conference and they were looking for apologies from the Vallejo Police Department. Initially, no public apology was given. The Vallejo police chief at the time and Andrew Badu did write a letter to Denise and Aaron and said that it was now clear that it was, quote, not a hoax or orchestrated event, and that the Vallejo Police Department's conclusions were incorrect, end of quote. The police chief also did find some of the comments made by Lieutenant Kenny Parks as unnecessarily harsh and, defense and defensive. However, he came short from using the word apology or apologize at that moment. He said that he would once Mueller had been indicted. So basically, he admits that, yes, there's evidence to show that this was not a hoax. But at the same time, I'm just I'm not going to say that I was wrong until, you know, there are other steps taken. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just not going to say I'm sorry. And he didn't. So um, <laughs> there might be a reason why I'm going to be using the term former Vallejo police chief. Through an episode of the television show 2020, it became, um, I guess you would say it became knowledge that Denise and Aaron had never actually received that apology. And at this point, um, police or the former police chief, um, Andrew Badu, and again, I'm sorry if I'm not saying the name correctly, um, you know, he had never given that apology. So... Christina Lee, who was the person in charge of um, public information at the Vallejo Police Department, said that, um, quote, the Huskins-Quinn case was not publicly handled with the type of sensitivity a case of this nature should have been handled with. And for that, the city extends an apology to Ms. Huskins and Mr. Quinn, end of quote. So after years, it finally happened. Um, it took about five to six years for that to happen um, when, you know, it was a completely different police chief. Um, so Denise and Aaron had to deal with first the break-in and the assaults. Aaron was subdued and couldn't get help immediately. 
Denise went through two days of emotional and physical and mental roller coasters and trauma against her, all with the police saying it was a hoax. And then they had to go through the scrutiny of both public and police condemnation, basically, and the judgments that everybody were making against them, and that affected their entire lives. They filed a lawsuit against the city and the police department, including some specific officers, and there were, of course, a number of different items brought up within that case filing, but defamation was definitely one of the main factors. They did settle for $2.5 million. However, the statement on this settlement says that it was done with no party admitting any wrongdoing. Just a little bit of my opinion again. Aaron and Denise did nothing wrong, so of course they should not have had to admit any wrongdoing. Now, as for the police, looking just at the Vallejo police, they first publicly accused them before there was any solid evidence to prove or disprove that theory. Um, They also did not follow up on every single piece of evidence. They did not remove those blinders that they had focusing on Denise and Aaron. They treated the victims as the perpetrators and also, in doing so, left the public open for more harm, for more crimes, because a criminal was still out there on the loose. Now, here is where I kind of started to go through the proverbial rabbit hole. Um, You know, I'm searching, I'm looking for things about the lawsuit. When it said that it had certain or specific officers listed, I was trying to find information on that. And in doing so, I found that there was a lawsuit brought against um, the Vallejo police for wrongful termination. This was done by former police captain John Whitney. Um, The former police chief, Badu, was very, very vocal about his mistrust of Denise and Aaron. Captain Whitney was a witness to many of the things that the former police chief did privately, and quite frankly, they were appalling. Um, The following things are alleged to have been done, um, going back to what I said near the very beginning. At the time that I was going through this, the cases were still open. So right now, these are alleged. So Captain Whitney said Chief Badu instructed Whitney to delete all of the text messages um, regarding the Huskins-Quinn case. This was going on during the civil lawsuit against the police department by Aaron and Denise, so he didn't want those text messages available. Now, not 100% sure about this, but I've seen enough to know that most text messages are still accessible, that there's a way that, you know, they can be accessed even after they're deleted. I don't know if he was hoping that maybe the attorneys wouldn't go that far and try to access deleted text messages, but, you know, that's what he tried to have Whitney do. Also, Whitney said that at one point, just before a press conference, that Chief Badu had said, quote, burn that B, bitch, end quote. So that pretty much, I guess, sums up what Badu was thinking about the case. Now, Whitney reported this. 
And that's why he said he was terminated is he was basically a whistleblower. What I find um, interesting is that even before Whitney brought this lawsuit, there is record of Chief Badu being questioned during an investigation. And he was asked if he had ever heard anybody use that phrase, burn that bitch. And he said that, you know, he hadn't. He'd never heard anybody use that phrase. So I just found it interesting because it's before Whitney filed that lawsuit. So that means either Whitney had reported this and there was an investigation going on or other people had said this or reported it as well. Now, if Badu had not said this in front of many people, it's not illogical to think that he would have realized that the person who reported that phrase had to have been someone that was in the vicinity um, you know, of that press conference. It could easily then be thought that even if he was not told that Whitney had reported it, that he could have surmised that it was Whitney and then retaliated by terminating him. And again, this is still going through the courts, so we don't have all of the specifics, but that's just kind of my thought. And some of these things will never be on paper. You won't be able to tell um, you know, what the investigators were necessarily thinking or what Badu was thinking at any given time. But logically, you know, looking at the time frame, that's what I'm wondering if at least is a crux of Whitney's case. But I mentioned a rabbit hole. And before I get into Mueller's punishment, I want to address the Vallejo Police Department in general. I will warn everybody I'm going to be going off on a little bit of a tangent, but it does provide information about how different administrations within the city of Vallejo were being run at this time. Also, in the interest of being upfront, I do want to say that I have a number of family members in law enforcement, as many people do. Currently, I have three family members in law enforcement. Two are a little bit younger, so they're relatively new. Um, about 10, 11 years ago, I had two family members in law enforcement. One is still an officer. The other was my cousin who was killed in the line of duty. Now, being part of a true crime community, um, I've had some people automatically assume that I will 100% always say that the police did everything right. I know that I've surprised some people in how I approach the actions of some police officers or departments. I feel that most police departments and most police officers individually are good. They're out there trying to help their community. But there are some individual officers and police departments that are corrupt or power hungry or use unprovoked violence, just a number of different things. And I 100% do not repeat, do not support any actions like that. That actually makes me so angry because there are people, police officers who put their lives on the line every day, those that have been injured and those that have been killed. And their names are demeaned every time a police officer or department acts 
in any criminal, violent, or corrupt manner. It takes away from those who've sacrificed and given their lives or, you know, whose lives have been irreparably damaged because of an injury. It just, it, it demeans that job and what those officers so freely sacrificed for. So when you have corrupt police officers out there, it puts people in danger, not just police officers. It puts the public at danger. It takes away from the, the trust and the faith that a community can have in their police officers. It's just damage that can't even be you know, counted. You don't know how much damage that one individual officer, much less a department, can do if they act in a corrupt manner. And I think that's just how I'm going to describe it is in a corrupt manner because that covers so many different layers. But I am not someone who 100% says that every police officer is right all the time. I have seen people who say that and you know, I don't know if they have family members in the police force like I do, but it would be very naive to say that every police officer has everybody's best interest at heart. And that can be anything from, you know, just being very apathetic about the way they do their job, you know, becoming complacent and not really following through as wholeheartedly as they can to just outright violating law and violating people's rights. So, you know, there's a lot of gray area in there, but any police officer who does not do their job to the best of their ability at all times denigrates the role of a police officer. So that's why reading about the Vallejo Police Department has made me so angry. For every police officer who has been killed in the line of duty, for every community who's been impacted because they don't have faith in the police officers. It's because of departments like this, in my opinion, gotta cover my bases there. All of these right now are still allegations and this is just my opinion based on what has been reported in newspapers and what has been stated is in any of the um, court documents. But what I found while reading through um, an article about a city council meeting just shocked me to where things go beyond the chief, um, previous police chief Andrew Badu, to possibly others. And initially when I you know, looked at the case and looked at the comments that were made by the police department at the time that Denise and Aaron um, you had been victims, I, I initially thought it was just okay. He's unprofessional. Um, you know, he's making unproven assumptions and putting them out to the public. You know, I thought it was basically an aptitude. But then I saw Whitney's lawsuit. So while delving into that a little bit more, I came across another article from earlier this year about that city council meeting. And it stated they were given updates on 40. That's four zero lawsuits toward the city. About half of those cases involved, quote, 
the city defending the Vallejo Police Department in federal and state courts. Several of those cases are wrongful death lawsuits filed by families of men killed by Vallejo police over the past five years. End quote. It does continue to give examples of some of those that were killed. And there were also lawsuits brought against the city um, for wrongful termination and whistleblowers. And that extended even beyond the police department. Now, first, um, we had went over some of the things that Captain Whitney had stated in his filings. But he also said that some of the police officers, they would bend the points of their badge. So, you know, the star where you know the points are on the star of their badge, they would turn them in or bend them in after they killed someone. And we have to ask ourselves, what other reason is there to do that other than almost like not to have a pun, but using the exact same words, but a badge to show that you did that. You're, you are altering that badge to show you did that. If, again, it's true. And if it is, or even just any small part of some of the accusations are true, then that whole police department needs to be, for lack of any other term, gutted. It just needs to be basically gone through and cleaned out. Um, for one thing, we do have the allegations that Whitney made. That means he's come forward and he is the, the whistleblower. But if he knew, other people have observed this. Other people have looked at the actions and let them go. Now, I don't know, given that Whitney was a captain, that means he probably had to be in the department for quite a while. If maybe some of these things didn't start to happen until the new chief came in or you know, the chief at that time or why something had not been done earlier. Um, but other people also had to know what was going on if these allegations are deemed to be true or proven to be true. And if they were, Everybody who did not say anything, who did not file a report or make a complaint about any of the things that were being done need to be held accountable as well. We're not talking about a job where someone, say, accidentally takes a paperclip home, you know, and it's something really minor like that. We're talking about a job where people's lives hang in the balance, whether it's a fellow officer or more often than not, the the public that they are the the public that they vow to protect. Another lieutenant on the force also filed a lawsuit for seven million dollars, um, and he was, you know, stating things, given um, information, kind of like a whistleblower as well. But then he was fired, so his suit was already at seven million dollars. Then once he was actually fire, fired, he increased that requested amount to $10 million, as well as the request to get his old job back. Um, within other departments of the city, um, the city manager, um, a man by the name of Greg, either Niehoff or Nyhoff, um, he was a city manager and a few people have filed suits for wrongful termination within his department. The suits state that, quote, Vallejo City Manager Greg Nyhoff created a culture of discrimination, harassment, and retaliation in Vallejo 
that was so deeply embedded that other employees felt free to do the same, end quote. So this just shows how corruption breeds corruption. If, you know, even employees go into a job with pure intentions and a pure heart, if they work amongst an administration that allows, you know, harassment and discrimination, eventually they're going to start doing that as well. And if they don't actively do it, they will at least then passively allow it by not making the appropriate um, complaints to you know, HR who, or whoever the appropriate person is to make those complaints too. And they can also say, you know, if my manager is doing it, why can't I? Or if my manager is doing it, that makes it right. But it doesn't. You know, any of those things that I just mentioned and more are never all right. So you know, based on these filings, it seems like if anybody make, had made complaints about this, they were terminated. So lots of lawsuits going on there in Vallejo. But let's get back to Denise. Um, you know, during the kidnapping and the attacks, she was able to see um, kind of underneath the goggles, she saw two sets of feet. Also, um, at one point, Quinn asked for a blanket. It, um, the person asked if he was comfortable, and Aaron asked for a blanket. This was about you know the time they were going to leave him, and the person said, "Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize how cold it is because we're we're remember we're all wearing wetsuits." So, also, this is going back to the first episode. There was mention that the kidnapper said something about a criminal organization. So, you know, organization means there's more than just one member. So given just these pieces of information, it's easy to believe that there was more than one member or person involved in the kidnapping. And not finding everybody involved will bring a level of fear to a whole community and even more intensely to Denise and Aaron as they lived through the attacks of this individual and any other potential accomplices that he may have had. In regards to Mueller and his sentencing, there was more than enough evidence to show that Mueller was, you know, responsible for the attack and kidnapping with Denise and Aaron. So he pled guilty to federal kidnapping charges. Um, in federal court, though, this was, you know, not on the state level, and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Um, it did not specifically say why it was federal, but I'm thinking at some point he must have crossed state lines with Denise, and I'm wondering if he crossed over from California to Nevada, um, because it mentioned Lake Tahoe, and I didn't know maybe he was on the Nevada side. Um, but there were some other charges that had to be addressed at the state level, because there's no federal ordinances for them. So for certain things such as burglary, false imprisonment, and forcible assault, um, those had to be charged in the state level. He pled not guilty to those crimes, not really sure how he thought he would get over that, considering he pled guilty about the federal kidnapping. But he pled not guilty at the state level, but on March 18th of this year, 2022, he was sentenced for those crimes as eventually he was able to see that 
he really didn't have a way out of it. So he didn't plead guilty, but he pled no contest to two accounts of S.A. But that leaves us with just Mueller being punished. Looking at the other bits and pieces of evidence, though there's been no forensic evidence to prove that another person was involved, there are far or by far enough questions to say, okay, this, this really does make it look like there was more than one person involved. So this goes back then to the importance of doing a complete and full investigation. Now I'm going to start just asking some questions, but the questions themselves, as well as some of the answers can be very contradictory. And so it's, it's going to be a little confusing. Um, I admit that, but that's why these two cases, looking at them back to back can, you know, garner so much discussion because they're similar in some ways, but the complete opposite in so many others and how do we go about handling that as both um, citizens and how does law enforcement go about that? So questions that I think we need to ask ourselves is why do detectives have to look at a case in more of a broad spectrum instead of having just one focal point? Why is it so important that those who do legitimately play hoaxes and lie be punished? And why should every single complaint that's brought up against someone be investigated to its full conclusion? With law enforcement believing the victim and asking all pertinent questions in a respectful manner and not presenting any information to the media that can defame that person. And why do we have to ask these questions of ourselves? Why do we think things are hoaxes almost as a matter of course? If there's something that seems outlandish or odd, why is our first response now to say that that's a hoax or that the person's lying? Why aren't some people believed when others are? What happens when these questions are not answered in the correct or appropriate manner? What can happen is a woman is kidnapped and instead of the police trying to track down those who actually did it, they're focusing in on one person because that's what their gut instinct is telling them um, that they should focus on. And what was the question that I asked very early on into the first episode? So I know we're going back quite a bit, but you know, after reviewing the Sherry Papini story, with her case dominating the headlines, sometimes the truth can be lost. If someone were to have a similar event happen to them, would anybody believe it? So, I think the first thing I want to address is confirmation bias. This needs to be avoided at all cost. Confirmation bias is when, I, I think the best way to describe it in terms of law enforcement is instead of taking the evidence and coming to a conclusion that someone actually has a conclusion already that's formed in their mind and they take the evidence and try to make it fit. So it's the exact opposite of what they should be doing. Um, I had heard an interview one time with an air crash investigator and this goes back quite a few years and what he said was that whenever he gets a call 
or notification that they have to get to the site of a crash, he would avoid any type of media. Now, I think this was probably before, you know, social media the way we know it today and, you know, news sources and things like that. You may have seen something on TV or heard on the radio, but he would avoid all of that because he did not want to get to the scene with some type of preconceived notion about what may have happened based on media reports. So when an officer or any member of law enforcement, you know, so an attorney um, and even members of the jury who are only temporarily in that role, they need to approach each case with an open mind, knowing that they're going to be presented with evidence and that the the evidence should prove a person's guilt. It should not be taking that person and believing that they're guilty and then just trying to make all of the puzzle pieces fit from the evidence. That's not the way it works. And that's the first thing that really needs to be stopped in terms of how to appropriately approach a case, in my opinion. In the cases we talked about today, it was automatically assumed that Denise and Aaron were lying and there was nothing done to really gather evidence. Um, they just you know, pretty much went by this assumption and instead of looking at things in a broad manner, they just looked at a couple of different things and said, here, this proves that you're guilty, even though there actually was nothing there to prove that they were guilty. Um, in the Sherry Papini case, the police may have had their doubts, but they still continued to look at all variables. When Sherry came up with a sketch or rendering, you know, that she gave to a police artist of those that um, she has said had kidnapped her, the police still released them. They still followed up every lead. And even though it took a number of years, they were able to finally get enough evidence and keep up on checking things. You know, they had some DNA and they didn't just check it once. They kept repeating that until they found that match that they needed and they left no stone unturned, which that's going to be my motto for this case. So those were two different types of reactions with the different law enforcement agencies. Now, with that being said, the... Um, Denise Huskins' Aaron Quinn case happened before the Sherry Papini case. Whether or not they actually um, had remembered about the Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn case and didn't want to follow the same path that the Vallejo Police Department followed, I don't know. But the fact is that they did not follow that same path. They made sure that they looked at everything. And that's what law enforcement should do because it not only brings the perpetrator or perpetrators of that particular case to justice, it prevents future attacks or, you know, kidnappings, burglaries, murders, whatever the, the type of crime is, it helps prevent, prevent them from happening because what would have happened if Misty Karasu had not, you know, followed through and didn't follow up on the evidence get, that she had gathered at Mueller's house, then it's possible that he may not have been convicted of the more serious crimes and he could be out walking the streets now with everybody else. But by following up that evidence, she 
proved the Vallejo um, police's case for them. And so why don't we believe everybody when they come forward? And a lot of this will be opinion. I think part of it is that the sensationalized stories get the headlines. We kind of have to wonder if Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn had not been accused of this being a hoax, would we even know their names? Some people might remember, but if not, they might have just been kind of a bookmark in the annals of crime. And you know, not too many people would have remembered them. But have a police chief come out and directly state that it was a hoax, not we believe it's a hoax, but this is a hoax, then that just made the media. And, you know, the media is there to make money and to get people to, you know, buy the newspapers or, as we're going more digital, you know, buy ad space on their website, whatever they need to do to bring in revenue, they want that headline. So of course they're gonna be following through with the police chief saying that. However, you know, have you ever noticed sometimes if there's a correction or an update to something? It's kind of hidden sometimes. So if there's a retraction from a newspaper, um, it used, I know that people would say, oh, well, the retraction is hidden on like page 12 in the bottom corner with all this other stuff around it. Whereas the main story that needed to be corrected was actually front page when it first came out. So in other words, you have to dig for the apology or retraction, but when it, a story first comes out, it's on the front page. So people remember what was on that front page, not necessarily the retraction or apology that was hidden in some corner. If someone were to Google search Denise and Aaron, if other news outlets such as 2020 had not brought the story forward as much, would people know that they were in fact innocent? Or would they search their names and come up with stories such as, you know, this is a hoax or this is the Gone Girl kidnapping? So in my opinion, People doubt stories because we're inundated by the sensationalized stories from the news. I even today, um, I usually have either podcasts or documentaries or YouTube playing in the background. And there was one that was talking about um, when YouTubers went wrong, which it wasn't necessarily always that. Sometimes it was just an accident. Um, that a content creator you know, had been in, something like that. But in a couple of the cases, it was where YouTube content creators had faked some type of crime as a joke. And one was about how he had called the police and said there was a suspicious character. And when the police got there, they said there was like a trunk full of coke. Four officers ended up being there for 45 minutes, but the trunk full of coke was coca-cola and it was like a reaction video i guess they were looking for the police to react to this well it might seem like a joke but even though the police i don't believe they were actually at the scene for a total of 45 minutes that drew them away and to get back to where they needed to be plus the travel time to get there that's that was about 45 minutes total that the police officers were used for non-police related matters. It was done for a video. 
And they said in that time period, there were seven emergency calls that those officers could have responded to. So that's an example of first that was highlighted in the media and it makes people mad. That was a waste of money, a waste of time, resources, and could have hurt someone else. It, put that, it puts that content creator's name out there, which I'm not going to say because I'm not going to you know, give them the notoriety for that. But that story is remembered because it was fake and it outrages people. And so the next time something comes up, if it just seems a little bit out of the ordinary, if it seems really strange or bizarre, the reaction, I think, of a lot of people will be, eh, can we really trust that person or do we believe them? And for those actually involved in the case, that can make it even stronger. For each time that a law enforcement agent responds to a crime that is not really a crime, it's a lie or trying to get attention or a hoax, every time that members of the community come together to help search for someone, to donate to a good cause, to you know, rally around those in their community that need help, and they find out that what they were rallying for and supporting someone for was not true, that makes them more cynical. And they'll look at every single instance where something similar comes up with a lot more cynicism and questioning, and they lose their trust in their fellow human being. And everybody will react differently. Some may decide, you know what, I don't want to think negatively about everybody. And, you know, I will always try to be there to help someone. Whereas others, you know, especially if they've had things in the past happen to them that help shape their, you know, ideals and beliefs, the first time that, you know, they're lied to in something like that or they feel like they've been taken advantage of, they're not going to you know, volunteer or be there to support people again. And both instances are completely understandable because a person is more than just one individual instant or instance or event. So having these cases, these hoaxes, affects everybody's ability to believe when something else happens again, and again, to varying degrees. Every day, crimes are committed against people, and we don't hear about them. In the time that it took for you know, Sherry Papini to allegedly be kidnapped, in the time that Denise Huskins spent in captivity, there are other crimes that take place where people are kidnapped or held hostage. Now, my, I'm not going to use the word attempted at anything. Honestly, I think if a criminal attempts to do something and they're just not successful, either because the person they tried to attack um, was able to outmaneuver them or get away from them, their intent still was to hurt someone. So when I speak of crimes, I am not going to use the word attempted in front of them unless I'm reading a list of charges and that is the actual formal charge. So every day there are these crimes whether or not the person was able to get away quickly or not, people are assaulted and attacked and those go to trial and people are convicted. And usually only someone in you know, the local area, the, the city or the county, know that happened. And in some cases they don't because the records might be sealed 
um, for a number of different reasons. But then when you have these hoaxes that, you know, make the national media, that's what people remember. They might say to themselves, oh, well, yeah, I remember somebody broke into this person's home and you know, the person was attacked and had to go to the hospital. And yeah, I think they, they went to jail. But you know what? There were three cases in the national news media where they were hoaxes. And in that person's mind, and I can admit that I've been there, you know, until I take a step back, I think that, you know, your first mindset is, oh, well, I know of three cases where it's a hoax, but, you know, only one similar case where it was fact. But when you take every city and county and little town across America and even across the world, those crimes are happening that are 100% true. And that's kind of where I got the title for this episode. I really didn't know what to call it. But when we look at the number of actual hoaxes or lies that are told um, to elicit attention, to garner, you know, fame in some cases, or for financial gain through sources such as GoFundMe, for every one of those that happens, there are thousands that are real. So we're so focused on looking at this little teeny puddle where some water has just started to gather. And being so focused on that, we end up missing the ocean that's behind us. We turn away and we turn our backs on those that need us to believe them while we're staring ahead at this one teeny tiny, seemingly innocuous puddle of water. But it's not quite so innocuous when you're so busy staring at it, focusing on what this little bit of water can do, that we miss the power of the truth. We miss the ocean full of people that have told the truth and need to be believed. And if we look at the number of cases of whatever type of crime that are actual hoaxes, Compared to those that are true and real, it really is a comparison of a puddle versus an ocean, a puddle of lies versus an ocean of truth. I'm not going to go into all of the minutia or little details of, you know, does that include those who might lie about, you know, being part of a crime? No, I'm just talking about victims and believing victims when they come forward. So when we're looking at the truth and lies, we're not looking at lies that suspects may tell um, when they're being interrogated. We're looking at the truth and lies in relation to a victim. And there are so many types of crimes where those who have survived through an attack um, you know, or any other type of trauma that comes along with a crime where they're afraid to come forward, and it may be because they're afraid they're not going to be believed that, you know, that law enforcement is going to question everything that they say, and they're going to remember these cases. They're going to remember that people have been accused of per perpetrating a hoax when it wasn't. So beyond just being concerned whether or not, you know, every aspect of a case is investigated and making sure that every 
person who is part of a crime is punished, we have to worry about then how these hoaxes or those that law enforcement come out and say is a hoax, even if it's not, how is that affecting those who've been the victims and survivors of crime? I have to say that I've been a victim of a crime and I was afraid to come forward. And if it wasn't for the support of some friends of mine, I probably wouldn't have. So I just worry that with each story that comes out about, you know, something being done as a joke or as a hoax for attention or monetary gain, that it's going to decrease the number of people or the percentage of people who will come forward on certain crimes. So, and that just leaves me with one thought that I want to go over today. I have a lot more thoughts, but for the purpose of time, you know, we want every victim to come forward and we want to believe every victim. But I have known someone who's also been falsely accused of something that's ruined his life. Um, later, the, you know, the person did admit that it was a lie to basically try to extort money that went too far. Um, and again, that goes to denigrating the credibility of every victim who does come forward. It also emphasizes the importance of following through on every lead, um, asking all the appropriate questions as an investigator and making sure that you get you know, any forensic evidence that you can because just as we want to make sure that every victim gets the justice that they deserve, we also want to make sure that no one spends time in jail for something that they didn't do. So that was a lot to take in. I know, it's like an hour and a half. Um, so I appreciate everybody who did hang in here um, for the episode. I admit I was a little conflicted about whether I wanted to go into too much about the lawsuits against the Vallejo Police Department, but at the same time, looking at their actions, I didn't think that it was something that I could just kind of brush over and maybe say a sentence about because it did directly affect how they handled Denise and Aaron's case. The way that, you know, Sherry Papini's case will play out, we still don't know. Um, whether you know, when it's taken to trial, if the jury will see that there's enough proof to convict her, whether or not other people were involved, again, giving everybody the presumption of innocence in these cases. But if it was a hoax by Sherry Papini, then that means there were so many resources, money, time, energy, hours worked, worry for something that didn't happen and that can never be replaced. It's not something that can be regained, nor can, you know, the trust of people around her. Well, they always, you know, doubt what she says. And frankly, there's a pretty good chance that people will. Um, when her story was out, I did want to believe her. I, I didn't want to think that someone could lie about something so, so horrendous. But, you know, as proof is coming forward or as proof is becoming known, um, if what her boyfriend says is true, if what the police have tracked down all, 
you know, it all comes together to this conclusion, then she hurt a number of people and not just those closest to her, but, you know, it's a, it's a domino effect of other people that she could have hurt who didn't get the resources that they needed because she drew resources away from them. So we'll see. Um, so I'm just going to end this episode right here. Like I said, in the first part, I was planning on doing a story about a, an aviation crash. I do have all of that researched, so I will you know, probably put that up as my next episode um, to be as enigmatic as possible. I'm going to say that you've heard about this flight number probably hundreds of times, and you may have heard about the crash associated with this flight number, but many of you have probably never heard about this crash. So yeah, that's about all I can say. And one of the reasons I want to cover it is so that those involved will not be forgotten. All right, so I will talk to everybody soon. Um, hopefully, since I do have the research done, it'll be a little sooner rather than later. Just need to get everything nice and orderly um, so that I don't go off on different thoughts and opinions. Uh, <laughs> because if I did not have an outline, I would probably end up with each episode being about four hours long, which nobody wants. I'm sure you probably are tired of my voice at this point. So with that, I'll leave all my contact information in the description of the episode along with those sources. I do have another podcast that's more about the region of the Delmarva Peninsula. I'll leave, you know, information on that in there if you want to check that out. And also, if you just happen to check out the show on Oxygen Buried in the Backyard, the episode titled A Family Affair from Season 4. Yours truly is on that, um, about that case. So I'll talk to you soon. Bye.